Duvid Media. This is Finding Quantum Quest. I'm Spencer Worth Davis. Last time we gave you a little background on Dr. Harry Kluwer. The Kluwer. Yeah. Who you were convinced is a supervillain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> and or CIA. Self-evident. Yeah. Well, those things are synonymous. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so you wrote for Star Trek Voyager. You worked on Earth Final Conflict, uh, the Gene Roddenberry show. He was one of the chairs of DARPA's 100-year starship study. What? Which I think you're familiar with. That's yeah? the nuclear weapons one, right? That's the one where they were like trying to get humanity out of the solar system within the next hundred years. It's a whole thing. community that, oh, okay, gotcha, never mind. This yeah. isn't the one where they shoot nuclear bombs to accelerate it or whatever? Uh, that might have been part of the okay. plan. I don't know. Yep. Um, And now he builds robots for, like, to act as human avatars, basically. Oh, my God. Wait, this is the same guy? Yeah, 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 all the same dude. But we called him up to ask about the kids' movie he made a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm Harry Floor, uh, certified smartass. I'm the the uh, writer, producer, co-director of this with my best friend Dan Saint Pierre. That'll be me, uh, Dan Saint Pierre. That's me right here. I was a co-director on Quantum Quest, and uh, I've done. I was a director on other movies, and uh, also an art director and uh, consultant for motion pictures and uh, primarily animated pictures. Dan's being more than a little modest here. His resume includes movies like The Lion King, Aladdin, Tarzan, Shrek 2, and Shark Tale. He's an Annie Award-winning art director and has directed multiple features. In any event, we now had probably the only two people who could answer our questions about this movie on the phone together. More than anything, we wanted to just understand the full timeline of this project, how it started, the different iterations it went through, how it finally got made, and why it's impossible to find now. We asked Harry to start all the way back at the beginning. The point of this movie actually reaches back to my university days. So I was earning my uh, two PhDs. Um, I also took a, a state science program, national then international. And, uh, and that was to m- promote science to K through 12. And it was a passion of mine and one of my professors Ephraim Fishbach and several Nobel Prize winners who I knew at Fermi. Um, we all cared about not having science be a black box because when science is a black box, we lose all of our freedoms because we don't know what our leaders are voting on uh, and we don't know uh, how our world is operating. So the concept is, is science isn't that hard to understand. You may not understand the math, but most people can understand the concepts. And so that gave me the passion in part to be wanting not only to be a scientist and a filmmaker, but also uh, to be an educator to people. So that's where this whole thing actually started, because I, I started forming partnerships with Marvel Entertainment or Spider-Man, where we did all the Spider-Man ties into It's Amazing How Science Can Change Your Life. And then also partnered with Paramount to make a Star Trek promotion. And I saw how well that was received not only by the U.S., but around the world. And so I thought it would be great once I got to Hollywood if you could make a 
action adventure animated film for kids that actually embodied science. And that was the genesis of why the story is what it is. So he, he had this idea like when he was still at Purdue, which, <laughs> which means like no later than 1994. Okay. And then the stuff he was talking about with Spider-Man and uh, Star Trek, he was doing like educational materials to accompany those films. So like oh, he, okay. he partnered with um, Marvel to make like Spider-Man themed educational stuff to sure. get into schools, basically. So anyway, we're talking like minimum 15 years, maybe more like closer to 20 years of this idea existing prior to the movie actually coming out. So then we asked him like, how did, how did NASA get involved? They're like, well, you had this idea. You want to make this educational sci-fi kids movie, but like NASA commissioned this thing as part of a project that they were doing. How did you get involved? Mm -hmm. I'm in Hollywood. I start writing for Star Trek Voyager as a freelancer. I create a show called Earth Final Conflict. And NASA reaches out to me and says, hey, you know, we've, we've seen the stuff you did, like for National Engineering Week and other things. Would you like to come in for a meeting for the Cassini-Huygens missions, the most expensive mission NASA has ever put together with a partner with ESA? And I was like, sure, I'd be delighted. I'd had a long relationship with, with NASA in the past. So I came in. And they asked if I would put a bid in to make a educational film. Uh, and the film they wanted was to show how images are seen from space. And the fact that you start with photons a million years ago from inside the sun, those photons go across space and they keep going into photon exchanges. So they bounce off the surface and then they get absorbed by the ship and they turn to virtual photons and they get emitted. And after I fell asleep and woke me up a couple hours later and I said, no, I don't, I don't want to tell that story because only you guys would watch it. I mean, it, scientifically it's interesting, but no one's going to watch it. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'll give you two movies. I will write a, a kid's movie where the underlying story will follow the photon's journey. You just won't know as the audience member until you really dug deep, like you listen to this podcast, that you actually saw two movies. You saw a movie about how you see images from space, which is actually cool. It starts a million years ago across the stars. Eventually, it's, it's a photon like the ones that are coming off the screen into my eye. But instead, let's make it an action-adventure film that, that kids, especially kids who are young, because we lose, we lose kids in science at the grades of three, four, and five. And if you don't get them then then they'll never get into it. We also thought we could make a film that if you were in college and, and even a light drug user, you'd really get into the film. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> even a light drug user, he says. So apparently NASA asked him to make this... Kids and stoners. Yeah. It's the market. Well, that's what he decided to make. Uh -huh. I think NASA wanted a more straightforward, like... More accessible. Yeah. Well, here's how photons work. And uh -huh. I think the idea was tying it to Cassini because Cassini was taking so many images and transmitting them back. 
to do like a little educational piece about like, here's how that actually happens mm. in scientific terms. Like here's right. how images from the outer solar system get to your eyeballs here on earth. Right. Harry decided to make some sort of weird a little extra with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> make something for a high teenager. He may instead. have been a light drug user. So it turns out NASA was not only directly involved with the film, but they actually commissioned it. So we actually started with a contract. NASA gave a grant, uh, for $100,000. Harry says that in addition to that $100,000, they got $12 million. So the budget had been, we'd seen a report as 10. Harry says it was actually 12. Okay. And that all of it except that $100,000 from NASA came from the Taiwanese government. What? Yeah. But that happened much later. Okay. Yeah. So in 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 the nineties, he just has this hundred thousand dollars. Famously, not a part of the European Space Agency. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I think the overall budget was like twelve. Um, we think Digimax took a pretty hefty management fee. Hmm. Uh, we got Jan and I got ten percent our normal fee. <laughs> so our main funder was actually the government of Taiwan. Um, because they wanted Dan to go to Taiwan and sort of create their professional animation industry. That Taiwanese money, though, came much later. In 1997, Harry just had $100,000 and some big goals. On a shoestring budget, he managed to pull together an all-star cast and start recording the voiceover for his movie. With that money, I first went out before the Cassini-Huygens ship launched and started to film the like a first cast on this. So if you look online, you'll see that there are two casts for this film. One with John Travolta and Sam Jackson and you know Christian Slater and Ann Archer. Yeah, and all those folks. Uh, and so that was all recorded. And then the ship launched and NASA asked me, well could you delay the movie? Like, well how long? Well just delay it to about 2006 or seven or eight so that we can get the end of the movie to be a, a flyby over Titan. And I was like, well, that's not normally how you make a movie, but there's a couple movies that are made over a long period of time. So I ended up saying, sure, we can, we'll delay the movie and wait for the actual data that comes into this movie. For context, the Cassini-Huygens probe launched on October 15, 1997. It was scheduled to arrive at Saturn in July of 2004 and send back data until 2008. NASA slash JPL asked Harry to delay the project so that the actual data and images from Cassini could be incorporated into his movie. Also, that first cast? They did record at least some of the movie at Buzzies, an L.A. recording studio, sometime during the summer of 2000. So how did a guy who had never directed a movie before, with a budget of $100,000 and no studio attached, manage to get all these actors on board? So I started putting this project together. I didn't have the funds to really hire the actors. So what I decided was, is you guys are always running your mouths that you want to do things uh, for kids. So I, I just found a way to personally call each one of them. And if I couldn't call them, I'd find their mailing or emailing or their agent or their manager and, and just 
and go to them. Now, for every actor I hired, I'd probably talk to 10. But the good thing was, is some of the ones I really, really wanted, like Michelle Geller, was on the top of my list. And Travolta was too, because uh, I like Travolta. Uh, and Christian Slater, those three and Sam, actually, most of you I got were end up uh, people I really love. But there's a long list of people I love. So uh, got a lot of no's. And then I le- realized that some people say one thing in public and, and another thing in private. But everyone you see in this cast came in at SAG minimum at a time when some of them were getting, even for an animation role, millions of dollars. SAG minimum refers to a minimum daily or weekly rate that can be paid to actors who are in the Screen Actors Guild. In 2021, the minimum rate for feature films with budgets in excess of $2.5 million is $1,005 a day or $3,488 per week. Since there wasn't yet a studio attached, Quantum Quest may have fallen into the SAG ultra-low budget agreement for films with budgets under $250,000. In that case, the day rate is $125. In either case, these actors were taking essentially nothing compared to their usual rates. So he starts making this film in like around 2000, but NASA comes to him and says, hey, we want you to actually include data and images from Cassini in the movie, but Cassini doesn't even get to Saturn for like another four years. Mm. And then it's going to take a while to start getting data back. So it arrives, Cassini was scheduled to arrive at Saturn in 04, and they were expecting to have data back by like 07 or 08. So they basically go to him and say, hey, can you wait like maybe a decade to make this movie that we just gave you money for? (laughs) And he agrees. Wow. I mean, I don't know how much of a choice he had, but Mm -hmm. like he says, sure, I'll still do it. Speed up the satellites. Yeah, right. Like (laughs) if if that's the way they want to do it, then you have to wait. Mm -hmm. In 2007, Cassini had arrived at Saturn. NASA was getting all kinds of great data and images back. And Harry was finally ready to start making his movie. Thanks to Gotham Group, the Hollywood-based management and production company founded by Ellen Goldsmith Vane, there was now an animation studio on board as well. The Taiwanese Digimax had agreed to fund and animate the project. There were still two big problems, though. First, the script had gone through a lot of changes in the last few years, and the actors needed to re-record some of their parts. But unfortunately, many of those actors were no longer available, either working on other projects or just no longer interested. Secondly, Harry needed a new director, and Gotham Group suggested Dan St. Pierre. In short, I was finishing up a, a movie um, in Toronto, and it, we're literally the the, we went, the crew and I went out to a, a, a park and had like a, a rap party picnic kind of thing. And I, I get this call from the agency, and they, there's this guy Harry Clore that wants to talk to me about the project that he's doing, and. So I said, sure, let's talk. I mean, it's, the timing's perfect. You know, I'm finishing one thing and let's talk about something possibly new. And and so Harry Harry gets on the phone and he starts grilling me. Like, I've never been in a job interview, interview so grueling and so awful. Like, he was asking me the incredibly difficult questions and like, really, you know, testing me. And I was like, what is this about? You know, like, why is, why is he being so tough? And, um, so, so after I got off the phone, I, I was like, well, that kind of ruined my day. And I called the agency. I said, what are you doing? Sending me 
guys like this, <laughs> like, what the hell? So, so I kind of forgot about it. And then, and then it kind of circled back. I got a call from Taiwan and uh, some, some guys that I had worked with at DreamWorks um, called me and said, we'd really like you to come and do this. And I said, well, if that guy's part of it, I don't know, you know, so, <laughs> so little by little, they, they tried to, they tried to schmooze me into it. They came, they, they flew out from Taiwan and they, we all had lunch in, you know, in Hollywood somewhere. And, you know, and they were like trying to, trying to get, you know, kind of explain to me that, well, we promised that we won't, you won't have to be in the same room with this guy. Um, we're going to, we'll keep you separated. You won't even have to talk to each other. We'll run. We had this producer that will run interference and all that stuff. And I said, well, it's not like all that, but you know, it, it was just very awkward. I mean, this is, you know, while you're talking to Harry now, this is, you know, understanding his style is a big part of this. Right. So anyway, uh, I accepted the role and I think the first time we met was in Taipei, right? Harry had a slightly different impression of their first interaction. So what happened was, is he gets off the phone and of course he has his, I get off the phone and I immediately, you know, go, this guy's fantastic. So I call up Gotham and I say, you know what? I don't want the, any of those directors you're pushing on me. I want this guy. And so Digimax is now in a position because I will only cut the deal and move forward if they get this guy on board <laughs> who thinks, thinks I'm a dick. Uh, <laughs> being polite, but also I'll just, I'll just call myself one. Uh, and uh, of course, the good story is as soon as I get there, we go to a bar, we have just a couple of drinks, we become very fast friends. <laughs> and uh, and slowly and surely, we, we understand who the antagonists are in this project. And it certainly isn't either one of them. In spite of their shaky start, Dan agreed to direct, and the two of them set out to recast the film. Using the same system as the first time, Harry and Dan eventually secured a group that included Chris Pine, Amanda Peet, Samuel Jackson, James Earl Jones, William Shatner, Jason Alexander, Tom Kenny, Neil Armstrong, Sandra Oh, Robert Picardo, Brent Spiner, Doug Jones, Casey Kasem, Mark Hamill, Hayden Christensen, and Abigail Breslin. They spent several months recording the voiceover in various studios around the country and then set off to begin animation with Digimax in Taiwan in 2007. From the beginning, the situation in Taiwan was precarious at best. Soon after they arrived, it became clear to Harry and Dan that Digimax wasn't at all prepared to make a feature animated film. The funding was uncertain, and there was confusion about what kind of film was even being made. Harry and Dan had both signed on to make a feature-length film, roughly 100 minutes long. However, the version that was released is only about half that length. We asked Harry and Dan about this discrepancy. One is the IMAX film, and then one is the, the, the film that's for general public release. It was always going to be IMAX because IMAX is a far better way of... Uh, the sound quality is way infinitely better. So we, we wanted to do... It was a big space picture, so we wanted big. But what was supposed to happen was both. So the reason we can try to go out and maybe make the 100-minute version now is the stars that we have are even bigger than they were before. And we have the 100 minutes plus recorded. So it's not for lack of the script and for lack of the artists. It was because of budget concerns and the government of Taiwan, I guess, didn't come through with the second batch of funding. And so it uh, ended uh, 
with the, uh, the IMAX film, but didn't complete the other one. Harry and I both thought we were making a full feature film. That was what I agreed to. That's what Dan agreed to. Uh, neither one of us would have signed up to do the shorter, just the shorter film. I wanted both because I wanted a more concentrated version for kids who, you know, where classrooms could come and see it uh, or college kids who had just gotten stoned. Could come and, see and then I wanted the full length feature for those who use edibles. Here's the other perspective. I, I get to Taiwan and I have a script and it's like a hundred and some odd pages. It's huge. It's really, it's really bloated. And so we, we had, well, we had to make necessary cuts to get it down to about a 90 minute to a hundred minute film. So, okay. Yeah, we, we did that. And we had a very tight, nice lean script to work from. And we start doing that movie. We start making that movie. And then weeks into it, I'm sitting in a conference room with, with all of the executive staff of the, of the studio. And they're saying, how do we get this down to 43 minutes? We, we, we're only gonna we're only gonna finance this at 43 minutes, and I was like, "Well, you could have told us, you know, you could have said something, really, because you know I wouldn't be here if I, I knew that you know it was going to be just it was going to go like this, you know, because I, I was absolutely in shock. So the, the the truth of the matter was, we were making a feature film the way we had always, you know, thought we were going to make, uh, you know, like like we would do at Disney or DreamWorks or someplace and. Some context about working in Taiwan in 2007 and 2008. Taiwan held their first democratic elections in 1996, and they elected Li Tenghui, the incumbent from the Chinese Nationalist Party. In 2000, Chen Shui-bian, the Democratic Progressive Party candidate, was elected. This ended the Chinese Nationalist Party's run of 50-plus years in power and marked the first peaceful transfer of power in Taiwan's history. Under Chen, Taiwan's Council for Cultural Affairs sought to develop their cultural and creative industries, including the visual arts, music, performing arts, film, design, and broadcasting. One of their primary strategies outlined in a 2004 white paper report was to provide government assistance to, quote, particular cultural and creative industries that have strong development potential, positioning them as, quote, flagship industries. It seems possible, if not likely, that animation is one of the creative industries the council chose to invest in. Chen served two terms ending on March 22, 2008, when Ma Ying Zhou, a member of the Chinese Nationalist Party, was elected president. After leaving office, Chen was charged with and found guilty of embezzlement and taking bribes totaling 800 million New Taiwan dollars, some of which was laundered overseas through Swiss bank accounts and paper companies. In his book, The Trouble with Taiwan, History of the United States and a Rising China, author Kerry Brown writes, quote, Chen's career after leaving office was mired in claims that his family, and in particular his wife, had been involved in corruption. Imprisoned in 2009, Chen was granted medical parole in 2015, but has not been able to speak publicly and reportedly suffers from serious health issues. As the first leader of an opposition party voted to power against the nationalists in Taiwan, many of Chen's supporters felt that the actions against him after leaving office were motivated more by political vindictiveness rather than having any proper legal basis. I think their interest was, at that time was that they wanted to kind of paint the, the, according to what I was told, the Taiwanese government wanted to paint the picture that they were a, they had a very creative industry with lots of creative people. And they weren't just a manufacturing sector in the world that was known for producing computer parts and assembling Dell computers or something, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want that 
to be the the way the world would perceive them. I mean, that's what they do, and they do it really well. It's great. Um, the, the creative aspects, I think they wanted us to come in and help train them up into that. Although there were some studios there that did some very fine work. But I think that was really how, how it connected. So it seems possible that once Chen left office in 2008, there simply wasn't the same political support for investing in Taiwan's creative industries, particularly animation. This might also explain the uncertainty around the budget for Quantum Quest. Regardless of how they got into this predicament, Harry and Dan now face the challenge of editing a 100-minute film down to about 50 minutes without re-recording any of the dialogue. The entire film was storyboarded and cut into animatic reels with sound and uh, the dialogue cut in, temporary music cut in and everything. And, and that's when we discovered now we have to take half of the movie out and still have some kind of a coherent movie to watch, like a story with a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, and characters that have development and arcs to their stories. And like, how are we going to do that? That became the biggest part of the job, actually, was the editorial process of taking so much out. And there were other challenges, too. In addition to the funding issues, Digimax may not have been as prepared to produce an animated feature as originally thought. So, yeah, all of these things were just like, there were a lot of surprises. I, th- I think that was really the, the, the discomfort came from not knowing where you're going to be, <laughs> if there was going to be money to pay us at all, or, or what was going to come next that we somebody forgot about that didn't, you know, didn't get scheduled somehow. And so, but I think the really, the, for me, it was just discovering that the Digimax people did not really know how to produce a film. And, you know, I discovered it by trial by fire, really. On top of everything else, the editor and assistant editor got arrested halfway through the production. The editor and his assistant came from L.A., these two surfing guys, and uh, we we saw them on the news because we had a terrible typhoon that was like killing people. These guys went out surfing in the typhoon in the North Beach of, of Taiwan, and they got arrested. <laughs> and it was on the news. These two idiot Americans were like surfing, so we arrested them. Throw them in the paddy wagon and take them away. Like, oh, great. This is getting better all the time. Assistant editor Andrew Hilprin remembers this incident a little differently. We were just kind of in the editing room with nothing to do. I don't know if it was th- at that time that we just went on a surf trip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Drove around Taiwan looking for waves. In spite of all this, they managed to finish the film in 2009, incorporating visuals and radar data from Cassini with assistance from Charles Colhase, who had originally commissioned the film for NASA back in 1997. It was a constant dialogue between myself and a gentleman named Charlie Colhase, who was on the, in the uh, on the NASA side, and you know, he fancied himself a bit of an art director too. So we had a lot of a lot of um, interesting insights on how to how to handle the material or present the material. He may or may not have been an art director per se, but in addition to a long, highly decorated career at JPL that included designing the Voyager missions, Cole Hayes helped pioneer computer animation too. He and Jim Blinn created computer animations for JPL's Voyager missions that were seen by over a billion people worldwide. 
They also provided animations for Carl Sagan's Cosmos, which was viewed by over 500 million people and won two Emmys and a Peabody Award. Anyway, after wrapping the visuals at Digimax, they then recorded the score and did all of the post-production sound at Skywalker Ranch. Harry once again successfully employed his ask nicely in the name of science and hope they cut you a deal strategy. They spent about two weeks at the world's leading post-production facility fine-tuning all the sonic elements of the film. Unfortunately, after finishing the film, they once again ran into budget issues and were forced to try and market it themselves. Several things happened. One is there's a large amount of funding that was supposed to come in. By large amount, I mean a microscopic what a normal studio is, but for for us would have been been huge to market the film. And instead, a teeny, teeny bit comes in. And then the 99% that was supposed to doesn't arrive. So now we have to try to market a film on our own. They get all that finished. They have an actual finished movie. But they don't have any money anymore. (laughs) And they have no... So Jupiter 9 Productions is... This is a nightmare. Yeah, it's it's not great. (laughs) Jupiter 9 Productions is Harry's company, his production company. Mm -hmm. They were responsible for the film in the United States. Digimax was responsible for it in Asia. So like marketing, distribution, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So Harry's the only one responsible for doing this in the US and he has zero dollars left. So they basically just have to like try and drum up some sort of interest and support for this movie and hope somebody buys it or Mm. chooses to distribute it. So they did Comic-Con 2008 and 2009. That's (laughs) perfect. They had panels. uh, Check the light drug user box. Back to back (laughs) years. They had, I mean, they had like Robert Picardo, Doug Jones uh, were there on the panel. Chris Pine called in. Wow. Uh, Brent Spiner called in. Wow. Uh, Sam Jackson was at Comic-Con. I was like, who are you? What are you? He was across the hall promoting Afro Samurai during the Quantum (laughs) Quest panel. (laughs) The panels were received with varying degrees of enthusiasm. Confusion? Yeah. (laughs) uh, A website called filmjerk.com called the 2008 panel a, quote, train wreck. Oh, no. (laughs) But, like, it, it also seemed to to work because like starting in 08 to basically 2010 when it came out, like there's a lot of stuff on the internet about this movie, Mm. like blogs, message boards, like the, uh, a lot of like the Star Trek websites and fan lands Mm -hmm. in the internet. People were intrigued by this thing and talking about it on the internet. So, they got a screening set up at this giant screen cinema association uh, conference. So they are the organization that manages like all of the IMAX screens in the country, basically. Okay. Like a professional organization for all the IMAX people. Mm -hmm. And they do every year they do these screenings where people from science museums or from, whatever place that has a, an IMAX screen can come and be like, yep, I want these three movies for the next six months. I'll take the tornado documentary. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it went extremely poorly. <laughs> I don't know the truth behind 
why we didn't get full distribution in the United States. Here's part of the key to that, and but I still don't really know. We went to a distributor's screening, and it was poorly set up. The image quality was awful. It was not putting our best foot forward. And we had all these guys, these buyers, I guess, that were from all of these museums across the country, and they all met in this place to see our film. And it, it was a poor showing on our part. Like, we didn't have the gears, the proper gear to really display it at its finest. But I think their concern was that it wasn't science enough for our our venue, it, our museum or whatever. It wasn't enough science, like, you know, the, the cold hard facts as opposed to our, our fantasy version. And they actually kind of turn up their noses at it a little bit. Like, this is, you know, not what we do. Okay. Okay, so you're not seeing the merit in this because you're expecting like a documentary from NASA of the, the mission. Well, um, yeah, you're right. This is not that. <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll have to go pedal it somewhere else then, I guess. And that's, that's kind of, for me, that was the, the end of bugging Harry about it and the end of pondering and wondering Filmmaker Stephen Van Buren was at that screening. It was awful. It was a catastrophe. It, it went over like a lead balloon. He agrees with Dan to an extent about why the film just didn't work in that setting. And there's several things going on here. One is that it's not on message for the type of film that is typically presented at these institutions. Secondly, the biggest learning curve that I had to go through as a filmmaker is when you have a 4-3 image on an 80-foot screen, there's a whole bunch of cinematic vocabulary that's just going to make people either sick or confused or disconnected from what you're doing. Stephen also brought up something that I hadn't considered before, which is that films shown in IMAX are actually slower than films shown on a regular screen or on your TV screen because the images are physically moving around you. So Quantum Quest, as if you've seen a, if you've seen even a trailer or whatever, adheres to none of that. So it was unwatchable from that standpoint. And then it's nine different movies rolled into one, and it's not really successful at any one of those nine things because it's like we're, we got Pixar comedy and we've got, you know, kind of like anime manga coolness and we've got rock and roll and we're trying to be retro sci-fi and we're we're trying to do all of these things and and there are obviously multiple creative influences and then we're going to throw some science in here at you just to show here's our little educational stuff mixed in all this zaniness and it's it's too many cooks in the kitchen and basically you could just see all these theater buyers going what the fuck was that Aside from all their other challenges and successes, what may have ultimately sealed Quantum Quest's fate is that they appear to have smacked a line drive squarely down the middle of the uncanny valley. There's not enough science for the science museums and literally not enough movie for the movie theaters. Surprisingly, there was another screening that went even more poorly than the first. 
we are going to do a test screening. So our, our Taiwanese counterparts came and our colleagues came and showed up at the theater, um, the big IMAX theater, and they forgot to bring the picture. So we're all sit sitting in this empty theater going, okay, so what do we do? Okay, let's just run the soundtrack and check the soundtrack, you know. So we listened to the movie and then all left and wow, that could have gone better. So it, it, it really got kind of weird. Like you show up for a screen and you forget to bring the movie. I, I just don't, I still to this day can't fathom how that could happen. But anyway. So somehow, in spite of all of this, somebody at the Kentucky Science Center said, yeah, give us that movie. We got nothing else. Yeah. Well, I think what happened, they were doing like a the science of Star Trek exhibit at the mm. time and thought that this would be a good tie-in to be like, okay, you saw the Star Trek exhibit. Here's William Shatner and Chris Pine and Robert Picardo and Brent Spiner in this, yeah. in this animated movie. Yeah. Give us another 10 bucks and go watch the movie. Right. That one came about just through, we, we had reached out to the IMAX community because I've worked with them for 10 years. And this theater was doing a Star Trek exhibit and they actually had the bridge of the USS Enterprise mock-up and all this other artifacts. And because we had this big Star Trek cast, they were like, hey, this would be a perfect tie-in. So it ran there. We learned that it also played in a couple festivals one in New York, the Imagine Science Films Festival, and then the Burbank International Film Festival in California. Mm -hmm. And then it was gone forever. <laughs> when we, when we, until now, when we talked to Harry, he said no one had so much as asked him about the movie in 10 years. Till you. Yeah. We wow. were the first people to ask him about the movie in a decade. Wow. <laughs> it just fell off the face of the earth. We get like that one place played it. They changed their movies every six months. No one ever wanted to buy the movie again. Wow. Harry hasn't made another movie since. Dan directed one more movie in 2013 called Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return. And now he primarily consults for other animation studios. He's not like at a studio full-time anymore. Okay. Uh, this and, broke up the team. And Quantum <laughs> Quest is far... Well, Team started and ended. At right, this movie. or broke up their careers afterwards. Yeah. Uh, it's like the apocalypse now of uh, educational films. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Digimax never made another movie, and I don't think exists anymore. Uh, and as of today, Quantum Quest is not available anywhere. Wow! Holy shit! But Kluwer and Saint Pierre both said they want to finish the full 100-minute version of the film and re-release it. So there are parts of it that are extremely weak. And I think Harry and I have a goal of fixing that, circling back and taking the things that make us cringe and fixing it because it's so clearly a different movie. And that was someone like pulling the rug out from under us. You know, it's like you, you start lowering the bar. Game People notice that, you know, and then they start like going, oh, what happened? You know, <laughs> like. So we left that at, like having answered a lot of questions, but mostly like just wanting to see this thing. <laughs> like we asked him straight up, can you just can we watch it? Can we see it? Yeah, yeah. And 
got sort of like a a yes, but one of those yeses that is like a let's push this down the road. Uh, yes, uh-huh. you know, my people will talk to your people. We we asked him during the first Zoom, and I think there was a real like feeling out situation. Uh-huh. I mean that too. Like uh, some strangers hit you up about a movie that no one has asked you about in ten years. Like, what are these guys doing? Right? Should I trust them with this thing that like maybe? Oh, I know they're not going to like get drunk and call me a villain on a couch and like <laughs> talk shit about this project. <laughs> well, there's that. There's that. While we waited. Our thinking started to drift away from how Quantum Quest was made and more towards why it was made. Next time on Finding Quantum Quest, we find out there was actually more than one IMAX movie made about Cassini. The Space Odyssey is for kids and light drug users. This one's for heavy drug users. Heavy drug users. Finding Quantum Quest is written and produced by Spencer Worth Davis, co produced by Sam McCullough and Ryan Gopperud. Story editing by Sierra DeMulder Ayers and Katie Roth. Special thanks to Eric Mason. Dan, can I ask you one more question real quick? Of course, yeah. Do you know Phil Collins? I do, yeah. Okay, that's awesome. (laughs) Uh, We thought you might, and we just had to know. I told him how great I thought his, his tunes were for the film. And he told me how great he thought the, the art direction was. So we kind of like, we had this mutual admiration pals thing going on. Well, you were, you were both right. He's a real fun guy. And uh, he's quite down to earth. You know, he, he played a drum kit that was made out of pots and pans that we bought at the dollar store or something like that. <laughs> And he and he and it's in the movie that whole trashing the camp sequence is him playing pots and pans from the dollar store. Incredible. And he beat the crap out of them. I mean, like he hit so hard. It's amazing. It's a great drummer. They were all dented and mangled and stuff. And we had him sign, you know, all these bent up pots and stuff. It was funny. Amazing.